Hey, uh, if I don't know you yet, I'm Josh. I've been said I'm one of the pastors. And uh, we are in a series that, that I'll be continuing today called The Blessed Battle Through the Beatitudes. Every week we've done this, I think this is the fourth week, we have read through the Beatitudes as a community because we just think the public reading of Scripture is super powerful. Uh, and as a practice, we want to get into the Scripture together. So my son John is going to do the reading for us today. So it'll be up here as well if you want to read along. From the fifth chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the most merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Excuse me, but I have a, a moment of just whatever that is. <laughs> Good. Uh, so before we dig into the Beatitudes today, uh, I think it would be helpful to actually step back and consider the context of Jesus's earthly teaching ministry, um, how he introduced himself, and then how he closed out his public teaching ministry, I think is powerful to set in context the Beatitudes and specifically the one we're going to talk about today because we're going to talk about the groan for justice. And I just want you to pay attention to how it shows up and how Jesus introduces himself and how he closes out his ministry. So let me read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verse 16. It says, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." So this proclamation set the tone for Jesus' ministry. He went around proclaiming forgiveness and welcoming all to enter into the kingdom of God. And, and it was controversial. When he read that, he went and sat down, because this is his, it's like his hometown church. He goes to church, reads from the, the prophet Isaiah, and it says every, everyone was looking at him. So he's you know, looking around, he's like, yep, that's me. I, I'm that guy. It's, it's the time of the year of the Lord and his favor, and I'm here to, to be the embodiment of that for you. So it was very, like, everybody's like, yeah, sure, Jesus. Like, we know your folks. Like, no, I don't know. I'd change your diapers. Like, I don't think so, right? So 
Have you ever thought about Jesus like growing up as a boy and having like, you know, people changing his, like, what was that like, right? It's like, anyway, we'll move on. Uh, here's the, the final parable from the final public teaching that he ever gave in Matthew 25. Fi- final public teaching, final story, final parable that Jesus ever told, right? Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory. Son of Man is one of the monikers of, of the Messiah of Jesus himself. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. So this is kind of an end times or eschatological parable, something that's parabolic but is going to happen to some degree in some way, right? All the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous, he's anticipating the questions, and then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whenever you did for the least, one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And, and then he actually contrasts that. If you remember, if you maybe have grown up in church, you know this parable. He contrasts it. And he says, you goats, you go away to, to, to fiery separation. And they're like, when, when, did we, when did we miss doing this for you? And he says, when you didn't do it for those, for my brothers and sisters who were in need. So this is high stakes. Do we have to get this right? What Jesus is talking about, we don't want to be found wanting. We want to do what Jesus is doing We want to say the things that he's saying. We want to be like Jesus in every way. We want to follow his teaching because there are consequences for not, right? So the question is, what do the poor prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed have in common? And it's that they're intimately acquainted with their need for a rescuer in ways that the wealthy, the free, the healthy, and the privileged often overlooked. So from the get-go of his ministry, Jesus lifted up those who were oppressed, those who were impoverished and disadvantaged and sought to be with them, to help them out of their situation and help them enter into the kingdom of God. And so, more so, through his teaching ministry, he has empowered his church to do the same exact things that he did, right? Mark Scandrit in The Ninefold Path of Jesus says this, how does the world become better? It's when we decide to use our power for good. The whole universe is God's creative realm, We have been given a small piece of that as our personal kingdom to manage. Our bodies, our minds, our time, our money and possessions, and the influence we have in relationships. We are being invited to adopt a new identity as agents of liberation. We are invited to care about everything our creator cares about, the dignity of human life at every stage, care of creation for future generations, just and sustainable economic policies, and care of immigrants and the poor, to name a few. So as I imagine, as we read this quote, and it even mentions the word liberation in there, and so that like 
can become this, like, what are we talking about here? Are we one of those churches that does libera- liberation theology? Are we, are we becoming woke? Are we going to do like CRT next? I mean, all the buzzwords, right? We just, that, that's usually what comes to mind because that's what our culture inundates us with when we talk about helping other people. When we talk about using what God has given us for the betterment of our world. And so, I think there are actually three common reactions when we're working for justice, when we talk about injustice. There are three common reactions that I just want to name up front. And these are overgeneralizations um, and, and really simplified, but I think it really sums up some of the posturing that we, we find in our own hearts and we see maybe on cable news, maybe on social media. So let's talk about those three and then get to Jesus and how he helps us navigate and do it a better way, okay? The first way to react to injustice is to trivialize it. You view the world as not being that bad for most people. And certainly there, there, there's research, there's statistics. I just heard a podcast where it talks about child poverty in the U.S. being drastically and significantly decreased in the last 20, 30 years. So there are, there are good things that are happening to fight injustice. If you're, if you're into minimizing or trivializing it, you look at all the good research and good data that supports like the world's an okay place, Right? But this results in a blame game where everyone who doesn't have what you have is most likely lazy or underutilizing their resources. And there's an unhelpful nostalgia about the past when things were better and people got along, or that's your worldview. It's like, we just need to get back to a golden age. Uh, A lot of conservatives kind of have this like, well, we just need to get back to when people respected each other. We need to get back when America was really great. And it's like, the question is like, who was it great for? Because there are a lot of people it wasn't great for throughout time, throughout history, right? And there becomes this reactionary resistance if you trivialize injustice where uh, conversations about how to improve the world, you just kind of like resist that overall. Um, And in fact, there was a political commentator within recent um, history who said on his show, on his talk show, if your church talks about social justice, you need to get out of that church as soon as you can. Which I think is really interesting if we actually heed that if we were at to actually do what he said to do, like that means we uh, look to political commentators to shepherd our souls more than pastors and other spiritual leaders that are in the trenches and doing the hard work of ministry alongside you. Like that's our world today is we are looking more to influencers and uh, talking heads for leadership of our lives than actual people that are called out by God to do the ministry alongside of us. Just the interesting dynamic that we find ourselves in. So, if you can't say amen, you can say ouch, and that's okay. We'll move on. So, the second posture, the second reaction towards injustice is to totalize it. We make it uh, injustice about everything and everything about injustice. The talk of injustice can become an all-consuming as you see it sitting behind every behavior system and responsible for every ill of society. Groups of people can no longer be taken at face value because they're the ones in power and they have victimized others even with their words. Words are violence, in other words, is one of the common phrases. This results in a widespread antagonizing where everyone who doesn't agree with you is the enemy and is ripe to be bullied and canceled. 
Uh, this, is, this is one of the roots of cancel culture, is that you're not talking out about injustice, or you're, you maybe have perpetrated it, or you're, friend, you're a friend of someone who has perpetrated oppression or injustice, and so you have to be canceled. And the, and the, the bullies and the mobs just like relentlessly attack you. And it, it, it really develops into this, like, I'm not sure what I can say in what spaces. Like, I always have to be couching my words or, like, nuancing things to death. Or I, I just can never know who I can be fully myself with without being retaliated against. It's really this, like, cynical, um, uh, subversive way to live. So, along with that, there's an idol, idolization of all progress towards a supposed utopia, where if everyone was educated or if the government was able to give enough money to the right people uh, and, and lift people up through governmental systems, everybody would be equal and there would be an equality of outcome. So you may see this on social media where one person says, if your church doesn't speak to this issue that happened this week, this catastrophe, this uh, I don't know, situation or of racism or something like that, you should leave your church. If your church doesn't speak to every issue that happens all the time, it really can lead to this exhaustion of like, we really have to like get involved with every cause every week and just stay on top of that. And I guess that just like brings me up short because it's like, is, is the church driving the conversation or are we allowing the culture to determine our priorities and our progress towards those things? And then third, and I think this is really the fault of the Western church, if you don't trivialize it, if you don't totalize it, a lot of people tend to spiritualize it. Often in our Western hermeneutic, or the way we interpret scripture, takes over, and we hear these verses, like Jesus quoting, God has anointed me to set the oppressed free, to uh, uh, the, the sheep and the goats parable, to visit the, the, the imprisoned and, and to help the sick and impoverished. We tend to spiritualize that stuff. Like um, terms that, that we use, prisoners become those in spiritual bondage to their addictions. The blind becomes those who can't see God's grace and favor towards them. And oppressor are those who are in need of deliverance. See how we, we spiritualize this and we tend to put it off on other people or the next age. Like God is gonna make all things new. That's true. And so we don't work for justice. We don't help people the way that we could or should in this day and in this age in practical hands-on ways because we just say, well, the important thing is evangelism and making disciples. That's the real work of the gospel. And Jesus, we'll get to this, doesn't allow us to make that dichotomy of over-spiritualizing those things. Because what that does is it results in a lack of potency in the gospel and uh, an obliviousness as people who are struggling around you. If all you have to, for people who are struggling around you is, I will, I'll send thoughts and prayers and God's gonna make it all, all okay one of these days. You know how trite that sounds to people who are really struggling and need connection and they need resources and they need to know what next steps they can take and they need people around them, a support system. You know how trite that is to say, well, brother, God's good all the time. Like, yeah, if that's true, it's just not always helpful, right? So Jesus shows us a better way. Again, you can say amen or ouch, and that's okay. Uh, Jesus shows us a better way of following him and working for justice in our world. So we've read this, but let's read it again. Matthew 5, verse 6. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So when, when we first look at this verse, thirsting for righteousness is the thing that really stands out to me. Uh, it, this whole series is predicated on, on this idea that there's these contrasts that are set up in our world, and the, king, uh, the upside-down kingdom comes to really point those things out and to, and to, to, to step into the middle and, and, and point us to a third way or a middle way so we don't get locked up in the extremes. But Jesus sometimes use, uses radical or extreme language to heighten the tension. So who is someone, and what does it look like to thirst for righteousness, to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Yeah, I think it goes beyond a simple desire for a sip of water or a nibble of chocolate or a pumpkin spice latte in this season. It goes beyond all of that. What Jesus is retur- referring to is this visceral need. It goes beyond logic and, 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 and rational thinking. It's this the deep feeling that you become aware of, thirsting and hungering for things that, that ought not be. It reaches into the central core of who we are and it displays it as an outward, I think groan may be a better way to think of it, an outward desire that doesn't care about decorum, it doesn't care about what's polite or what's culturally appropriate, hungering and thirsting, groaning from your inward like seat of who you are is what Jesus really had in mind. But then the righteousness piece. Righteousness, as, as we have come to commonly use it, especially if you've grown up in the church and you've read the New Testament uh, uh, for a lot of your life, it's our personal standing before God. Jesus came to make us righteous or right, in right standing before God. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so when we read this, we can, we can look at like, we can try and interpret it like, this is a desire for greater righteousness before God, a, a desire for greater living. Uh, you might call that holiness or sanctification, to use some words from church and from scripture. And I think there's a point where that can be true. Like, like as we follow Jesus, we want to be more like Jesus. We want to do, be with him and, and do the things that he does. That's, that's what a life of discipleship or apprenticeship to Jesus looks like. So there could be a, a dimension of this that, that we can connect to really easily. It's, it is a desire to follow Jesus more closely, to get rid of sin in our life, and to be more wholly devoted to God. And yet, I think that actually falls short of what Jesus is talking about. There's a dimension where that's true, but when you look at it from the, uh, a side of biblical interpretation where justice and the word righteousness are, actually have common roots and are interchangeable in both the original language of Greek that, that the New Testament is written in and also Hebrew. So you see oftentimes where justice and righteousness are used interchangeably, such as Psalm 89, verse 14. It says this, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. So the psalmist won't let us separate this idea of righteousness or standing rightly before God and reflecting him rightly, doing, you know, having inner holiness, things like that. It won't let us separate that and the idea of justice. And I think that's actually what Jesus has more in mind here. Those who hunger and thirst for justice, for the outward demonstration of righteousness. Because, right, having your heart changed by God should always lead to right action. 
We have a tendency in the Western world to compartmentalize and separate. I can be in right standing before God, but never let it uh, affect my actions. And we would, Jesus would say that that's not the point at all, right? A heart overflowing with God's love is always going to be outward. So justice and righteousness are interchangeable and is more in line with what Jesus has for us in Matthew 5, 6 in this beatitude. Tony Evans said this, this is not a seesaw, speaking of righteousness and justice, this is not a seesaw where sometimes you go for righteousness and the other times for justice. Those are twin towers. They are always to be balanced. Righteousness is the moral standard of right and wrong based on God's divine standard. Justice is the equitable and impartial application of God's moral law in society, and God wants both. So we don't get to choose. We don't have to choose. It's like someone who says, would you rather hang on to your right or left lung? And I'm like, I would like to have both of those functioning well, right? Um, Tim Keller, in fact, talks about uh, uh, justice and, and uh, the gospel, righteousness, uh, as two wings of a bird, Bird needs both wings to fly, right? And so we need righteousness and we need justice to follow Jesus uh, adequately the way that he intended us to do. So putting all this together, Jesus is telling his original audience that the weight of oppression that they're experiencing, because remember, remember who he's talking to in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the poor, it's the oppressed, it's the hungry, it's the people in need, it's the people that have the time and the availability to follow him up a mountain, Right? It's like there, there are people that are really following Jesus because they're in need. They're wondering, what can I get from this guy? What is he promising us? And Jesus is there to, to meet a spiritual need, but also, also tangible needs as well. Okay? So Jesus is telling his original audience that the weight of oppression will not always be there. For the groan they feel will be taken away, and their deepest desires for justice will be satisfied. And to us, Jesus is saying to be actively involved in removing injustice so that everyone everywhere may be welcomed into God's kingdom and flourishing and uh, fulfillment that it provides. So Mark Scandrett in his book again says this, it's easy to feel less urgency about changing unjust systems when they benefit us or when we are insulated from the pain that they cause. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. If we aren't actively working for change on both personal and systemic levels, then we are complicit in keeping things the way that they are. The system is indeed broken, but we are that system. Man, that is a good word right there, isn't it? If we want to see change, it will have to begin with us, with our hearts and minds, our actions, our voices, and our votes. The, the, this beatitude invites us to move from apathy to agency. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. So let's talk then about ways that we can be involved and some of the postures that we need to embrace and others that we need to resist. So I've just couched this in three do's and three don'ts. And so any of you Enneagram 8s that don't like being told what to do, just pretend this was your idea, okay? Your Enneagram 1s need that too. Ask me how I know. Okay, do. Do this. Find your why. What keeps you up at night? What problem do you see in our world that you lose sleep over? You say to yourself, this, somebody's got to do something about this. Somebody's got to step up. Somebody's got to say something. Somebody's got to help these people. 
Somebody's got to fix this problem. What is your why in this world? And yes, you all need one. We all need one. God has designed it. If Jesus is saying, the spirit of the Lord is on me to release the captives, what is the spirit of the Lord on you for? He's not on you for your entertainment. He's not on you for your comfort. God has empowered you for a reason. And for you to fulfill your divine design means understanding what makes your heart tick and bleed for other people. To live a life where you don't know what the spirit of God has anointed you for is to live a boring and detached life from God. You absolutely need to know what God has put you here for and what keeps you up at night. Don't assume your cause belongs to everyone else too. We are a diverse church. God said through Paul, he's made his body of many members of different functions, right? We all need each other. And if we all had the same cause, there would be a lot of people that wouldn't be helped. Like if we just got focused on one brilliant, bright cause, that would be cool, but there would be a lot of need that we could spread out and we could help people. And so I see the danger sometimes in like people really ramping up their cause. And it's good and they really believe in it, but they get really jaded because they can't understand, why does nobody else care about this like me? You could be the one that goes first, or you also could be the one that activates other people to figure out what is their why and unleash them in, in, in their lane of, of help and need, right? Okay, do, do this. Embrace defiant joy. I love that, defiant joy. That's what it is today, to live in joy is to live defiant of the world systems. To be joyous in Jesus, because C.S. Lewis says joy is the serious business of heaven. They have parties every time someone comes to saving faith in heaven. They stop, they celebrate, just like the prodigal father, right? Joy is the serious business of heaven, and it should be our business too. And to live in joy means to go, I will not give in to cynicism. I will not give in to apathy. So in, uh, actually remember this. Remember how Jesus ended his mission statement. It's the year of the Lord's favor, right? That's why he, a part of why he'd been anointed by the Holy Spirit is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What he's doing is quoting Isaiah 61 in, in, in that, those verses. And Isaiah is talking about a concept called jubilee, where every few years, all the, all the uh, indentured servants would be released. All the land would be re- returned back to its original owner. All the debts, your credit card bills are wiped out. Your student loan debt, you don't even have any, and he's excited. That's amazing. All your student loans, you can let that pet go back into the wild. It's gone, right? Like every 50 years or so, everybody like parties, and the, 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 the ground rests, and they just have a year-long celebration. And so Jesus says, I'm the embodiment of Jubilee. I've come to set you free and forgive your debts and welcome you into heaven, Right? And so that's a joyous occasion, the the year of the whole year of living in God's favor, like tangible presence, like that just like syrupy anointing of favor on your life. Can you even imagine that? That's what Jesus said. That's what I'm here to give. And so to live in this kind of joy, it pushes back against the darkness. It pushes back against indebtedness and, and bondage and oppression, right? 
And so this is important because as John Tyson writes in his book, Beautiful Resistance, neurobiologists, shouldn't be too hard, but it is sometimes, have shown that while the majority of the brain's development stops during childhood, there is one location in the right orbital prefrontal cortex. Don't ask me to point to where that is. It's in the front. That's what I know. That has the ability to grow throughout your life. This has become known as the joy center. So there's one place in your brain that keeps growing throughout time. It's the joy center. One book's author observed, when the joy center has become sufficiently developed, it regulates emotions, pain control, and immunity centers. It guides us to act like ourselves. It releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. And it is the only part of the brain that overrides the main drive centers, food and sexual impulses, terror and rage. Without sufficient joy strength, we spend our lives trying to fill in the deficit. So embrace defiant joy. Don't give in to apathy and learned helplessness. When there's, when there's too much need in our world and we're not sure how to, how to express and, and get involved in ways that we can know that we can make a difference and when we, when we lose our joy in the midst of that, to protect ourselves, we tend to shut off our emotions and we give in to apathy, where we see need all around us, but it actually doesn't pull, it doesn't tug at our heartstrings anymore. We see need, and we just kind of shrug our shoulders and give in to learned helplessness, where it's like we just kind of go throughout our day and expect everyone else to be in a hard place and that we're never responsible to get involved. So we need to resist apathy and learned helplessness. Do prepare for a marathon pace. If you treat working for justice like a sprint, this will guarantee that you'll get burned out fairly quickly. It's important that we partner with others, especially those that have gone before us and have laid the foundation that we can then build on. If you've got such a unique idea that no one anywhere has ever thought of it, and you've got to go it alone, is this kind of, like, America really loves the pioneer. You have to be aware of that, especially when you're working for justice. Like, you're the lone person with a call from God to do it all by yourself. It's like, ooh, okay, we should set up some counseling now uh, for later when you need it, because that will burn you out. We have to learn to listen and ask questions about how needs have, have tried to be uh, met in the past, how we can maybe partner with people that have gone before us and are actively working. God, you're not the first person to show up with the anointing from God to, to break a yoke, a cycle, and to solve a problem. There are many people that are already actively working in partnership with God to, to further the kingdom in our midst. Find those people. And then don't. Practice what I call, I don't know a better word for it. Maybe you have a word for it. Hair on fire activism. You know what hair on fire activism is? It's like everything's burning. And, and you go from one fire to one fire pouring you know, grease on it or something. It's like everything's getting worse. And you're just like can, burning the candle at both ends and the third end if you could find one. Um, we see everyday examples of people who, when they can't persuade others to join their cause, they use fear and anger to gather a crowd. Outrage is powerful right now because we've lost the art of persuasion about appealing to uh, what Lincoln called the greater angels of our nature, like appealing to the heartstrings and, and people's personal calls. What we do is we inflame people in outrage to gather a crowd and then we fight a common enemy. And a lot of times that's done in the name of justice and it's a false justice. It actually will not bring a greater peace to the situation. So I do want to acknowledge after saying all that, 
is that there are those in our midst that have either been the victims of injustice, oppressed, traumatized, and abused ourselves. Nationwide, 81% of women and 43% of men reporting experiencing some form of sexual harassment and or assault in their lifetime. So I just want to, I want to acknowledge that first because it's sometimes hard to listen to um, talks about justice when you're still sitting in your own injustice yourself. And what I will say, I don't have an easy answer for you. I don't have the reasons for why that might be the case and why you might be still in the waiting for justice to come fully. I do want you to know that you're seen and that we're sorry that you're in the midst of that. And so I'm not gonna give any easy, glib answers, but I do wanna remind us that Jesus is still in the waiting for his justice. And he can relate to where you're at. So if you are that person or you know someone closely that is the victim of violence, Jesus can relate because he was and he's still waiting too. And I think what I will say is one of the greatest testimonies against the forces of darkness and injustice is that those of us who have been victimized and yet still choose to work towards love and forgiveness in the name of God are some of the most powerful testimonies of, of his kingdom. Amen. And it can be that we link arms and walk towards Jesus and it may be on that road that you find your healing. So what I wanna leave you with is this. It's, it's interesting to me, a bit of pop culture, okay? Um, there are, in the DC universe and the Marvel universe, there are two heroes that have this posture of this, the uh, uh, crossed forearms. So Black Panther has the, the Wakanda Forever salute and Wonder Woman has her bracelets. There's probably a technical name. I, don't, I didn't go down the rabbit hole too much on that, but she's got these bracelets where she can you know, cast off bullets and stuff. And I think that's a posture that's really interesting because it, on one hand, signals an, an embrace of identity that I will not accept the status quo, that I will stand against injustice. And it's in the breaking of that, like there's power that comes out when they both release that, to say I will take the steps necessary to fight against injustice in my, in my world. So as you watch those movies, just pay attention to that. It's just powerful that, that we as human beings have, have uh, put some hope or like some, I don't know, uh, uh, acknowledgement into these comic book and movie characters. That, and it's no, it's no um, coincidence that they're it's a uh, person of color and, and it's a woman. They're, they're you know, not white male dudes that, that have these, you know, fierce personas, but also this posture of no more and I'm gonna do something about it. And that today is what I wanna invite you in. There's something that as we read those comics and we watch those movies, we go, yeah, I want more of that. I wanna do that, I wanna be like that. And that's, for me, what I would like to invite you into. Um, worship team, why don't you come on up? And here's this week's practice. Here's this week's, you know, next step. How is God inviting you to engage in works of justice? And where do you need to turn away from apathy and inactivity? Why don't you stand with me as we ponder these questions together? How is God inviting you? What 
is the why in your life. What need, what problem, what is it that God is saying, I'm gonna give you the solution for that when you get involved. And where is it that you need to turn away from apathy and really take some marching orders from God to get involved? Where is it that you've been resisting, saying, no, I'm not, I, don't, I can't solve that, I can't get involved with that, I don't have the resources, I don't have the time, they don't need me, they don't want me. Where are those areas that God may be just asking you to take a next step this week? And if you, if you will, I'd love to pray for you. So why don't you bow your heads with me? So God, as we stand here before you, Jesus, we, we know that your word is true and good for us. We see where you've said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So I pray that you first would release hunger and thirst for righteousness across this room and, and online and those listening later. Pray that you would release a groan against injustice, God. Places are in our lives where we know it's not aligned with you and your will. Places in our neighborhood, in our world, that we see the same. God, would you release a groan of no more? A groan of, I, I need to get involved. And Jesus, I, I pray this week that you would open doors for us, opportunities for us to link arms with others to advance your kingdom and to bring justice into our world, God. Jesus, we wanna be with you, we wanna be like you, and we wanna do the things that you do. And so, all across this room, I, I pray that. That you would continue to model for us the God of justice, the God of righteousness and how we can get involved ourselves. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.